Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for yet another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 39 for the second quarter of June 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is radiometric dating, the young Earth creationist response in a part two of two parts of an episode. In the last episode, we talked extensively but superficially about radiometric dating. Rachel Axe was my guest, and she explained the basic process of radiometric dating, how it works, and some of the known caveats to the method. The problem for young Earth creationists is that radiometric dating would seem to indicate that Earth, Mars, asteroids, comets, and the Moon, in other words, objects that we have samples from on Earth, are roughly 4.5 billion years old. Young Earth creationism holds that Earth is only about 6,000 years old. And so, probably ever since the technique was developed, young Earth creationists have tried to poke many holes in the method. Not a month goes by that one of the top three creationist institutions doesn't put out some sort of article attempting to again refute some form of radiometric dating. The topic is way too broad to address every single claim and every counterclaim in this one episode. Instead, the approach here is that I'm going to break down the majority of the creationist claims that I've read into a few different categories, provide an example, or three, and then explore whether or not that idea does what the creationists claim that it does. I'll also note that I'm adopting the term creationist in place of young earth creationist for this episode. I realize that old earth creationists are still creationists, but it's a long phrase and the YEC abbreviation gets kind of old. So to get right to it, the first category of claims is that systems aren't closed. In episode 38, we talked about the requirement that a system be closed in order for radiometric dating to be valid for that sample. What this means is that none of the parent material can get in or out, and none of the daughter material can get in or out. You can think of this like an hourglass. If the hourglass has a leak, then your assumption about the ratio of parent to daughter is not going to be valid. The creationist claim goes, The idea that a system in nature could remain closed, that is, not influenced by any outside sources, for millions or billions of years is absurd to the highest degree. Now, of course, they offer no evidence to back this up. They simply rely upon human common experience of, like, kicking a rock and breaking off chunks of it to make you think that what they say is true. Now, Rachel and I talked about how this is a valid assumption in cases that legitimate scientists use for age-dating materials. The reason why I say legitimate scientist is because, well, we'll see in about maybe 10 minutes or so. Now, for example... If I drive five miles west, I hit the front of the Rocky Mountains. When no one's looking, I could take out a rock hammer and start chipping away. I can go in, grab a part of a rock that's far from the exposed surface. If I then take that rock to a lab, they're going to go further inside of it and take out individual mineral chunks and date those in order to find out when those minerals formed. I can 99.9999% guarantee you that those minerals are nearly perfectly closed system, where heavy elements are not going to be exchanged with the environment. Rock is pretty darn solid. Another way to think about this 
is that if the rocks were not a closed system, you would expect the ages would vary across multiple samples of the rock or bone or whatever you're trying to date. But when care is taken with the samples in order to be taken from non-weathered nor eroded regions, then the ages from different parts of the sample agree to within 1-3% to or so. It's incredibly unlikely that the contamination would be perfect enough to affect all of the ages in different kinds of minerals in the exact same way, and I would argue it's more unlikely than it not being a closed system. Another key part of radiometric dating that we discussed is that you have to know the decay rate of every isotope you're using, and it needs to be constant, and this falls into the second category of claims, that the decay rates have changed. Knowing the decay rate is fairly straightforward, even for isotopes with half-lives measured in billions of years. Yes, there is scatter between different experiments, but overall we have a pretty good idea of, say, for example, potassium-40 has a half-life of 1.248 billion years. Is it possible that it's 1.249 billion? Sure. Is it possible that what's 1.23 billion? Maybe. 1,000 seconds? No. But this decay rate needs to be constant. It can't be one thing today, another thing in the past, and another thing in the future. If it changed, then that would make the math, first off, much more complicated, but we would also have to assume that we knew what the decay rates have been in the past and will be in the future, if we want to date stuff in the future. And so, creationists will simply say that it's changed in the past and it's changed in just the right way, so that if all of the ages that we get are thousands or millions or billions of years old, they're wrong, that it's actually all less than 6,000 years old. The arguments for this among creationists are varied, and they get highly technical, especially for creationists, and so I'm not really going to go into the individual claims with individual articles and quotes, etc., etc., etc. I've linked up to several of them in the show notes for the episode. Instead, I'm going to talk about four lines of evidence that show that the decay rates haven't changed. So first off, we can turn to supernovae. They produce huge amounts of radioactive isotopes, and pretty much all of our original radioactive material in the entire solar system came from a previous supernova. Or God. Anyway, when these highly radioactive elements decay, they produce certain wavelengths of light with a certain intensity that's measurable and specific to the rate of decay. When the supernova in the neighboring Magellanic Cloud happened in 1987, this is a neighboring galaxy that's only about 170,000 light years away, astronomers monitored the decay rate of radioactive elements that were produced in that supernova explosion. It matches what we measure on Earth, and so we know that at least they've been constant between our galaxy and a neighboring satellite galaxy over the course of nearly 200,000 years. Another line of evidence is that if radioactive decay were fast enough in the past in order to make everything only 6,000 years old, then the sheer amount of radioactive material in Earth would have melted the entire planet. It would still be molten today due to all of the heat generated from the radioactive decay. Unless you're somehow going to argue that, in addition to the rate being faster in the past, somehow it also didn't release any energy for some reason, even though it does today. 
A third line of evidence is that different radioisotopes decay in different ways, and yet when these different ones are used on the same sample, the ages are consistent. It's highly unlikely that enough changes to specific nuclear events to specific physics constants could happen in tandem in just the right way to get a uniform offset across all these different methods in order to get something that's only 6,000 years old. A fourth point is the point that I alluded to earlier. Radioactive decay is dictated by the principles of quantum mechanics, and we can derive a prediction of what they should be from first principles of quantum mechanics. Any changes to the decay rate means that these fundamental physics constants must be different. Again, in just the right way to still allow everything to work out in the end to get 6,000 years old. I suppose at this point, roughly halfway through the main segment, it's appropriate to mention that yes, one could argue this way, that God did all of this in order to fool us, but that's not science, nor is it the scientific method, nor is it a scientific way of arguing against radiometric dating. Breaking out from the fundamentals of radiometric dating, the third claim I'm going to talk about is that geochronologists argue that all of radiometric dating of fossils is a circular argument. The fossils date the rock and the rocks date the fossils. In fact, to quote from the Creation Evolution Encyclopedia, This evolutionary fraud is simple enough. Evolutionists date the fossils by the rocks they are in, and they date the rocks by the fossils that are in them. Unfortunately for young Earth creationists, this is not true. As Rachel explained in the last episode, geologists the world over had built up the geologic column over the course of around 200 years before radioactivity was even discovered. They used outcrops and layers from all over the world to construct this, and they saw what fossils were in each layer type. After radiometric dating was discovered, the different layers were dated generally by dating volcanic rocks within and between the different layers. These absolute ages almost always supported the relative ages that had been constructed by geologists in the hundreds of years of study before radiometric dating. It's only now that we have over 300 years of research in this area that a geologist can be fairly confident when they say, for example, trilobites. If these are in a layer of rock, then that rock dates to between the Cambrian and Permian periods, between very roughly 500 and 250 million years ago. It's not a circular argument when it's independent lines of evidence that come to the same conclusion. The fourth category of claims looks at actual examples of radiometrically dated material and then says, aha, it's wrong. Therefore, radiometric dating doesn't work. For example, an entire section of Answers in Genesis page o links on radiometric dating is, are there examples of inaccurate results obtained from the potassium-argon dating method? There are two main examples of this that are often touted in young Earth circles. The first has to do with potassium-argon or argon-argon dating of historic volcanoes. What historic volcanoes means is that these are volcanoes that erupted during human history and were recorded, so we know the exact year or years of the eruptions, or we know it to within like 5 to 10 years, something like that. 
It should also be noted, before I go further into this, that both of these methods, the potassium argon and argon argon, rely upon isotopes with a half-life of roughly one and a quarter billion years. That means that the absolute youngest something can be in order to really use this technique is several thousand years old, and that's on modern equipment. If it's younger, then there won't be enough daughter element present in order to get any sort of meaningful age above the inherent uncertainty in the measurement. In one study that creationists point to, the young Earth creationists first failed to read the basic data table correctly, and then they misinterpreted the results. This is detailed in an article on an old Earth Ministries website that I've linked to in the show notes entitled, Blind Leading the Blind, where successive generations of young Earth creationists continued to quote the miscopied results that were copied by the first young Earth creationist to talk about this from an actual scientific paper, where the scientific paper was completely misrepresented by the young Earth creationist. As I said, this is detailed in the article that I'll link to in the show notes. In another example of volcanic material dating, young Earth creationists went to date rocks from the 1986 Mount St. Helens eruption in the United States. Now, remember, they're using a technique that only works for samples at least thousands of years old. And when the creationists went into the field, gathered their samples, and sent them to a lab, they sent them to a lab that specifically stated they could not age date anything younger than 2 million years old. The lab returned ages between 0.34 and 2.8 million, well within their quoted uncertainty, especially given that They said, to begin with, we can't date anything younger than 2 million years old. But the problem goes deeper. We briefly touched on this last time, but radiometric dating requires dating a single part of something. In a rock, that's the overall matrix of the rock or individual crystals within it. You can't send a mixed chunk of rock and have it dated, but that's what these young Earth creationists did. And those samples of rock can contain, and probably did contain, crystals called xenocrysts that are solid at molten rock temperatures and so can be much, much older than the volcanic rock itself. The second set of examples has to do with radiocarbon dating methods. Creationists will often point to studies of currently living or very recently killed animals that were carbon dated to be thousands of years old instead of zero. These examples, though, were all pointed out by normal geologists and biologists who were talking about and describing what is known as the reservoir effect. Basically, some animals that live in water can yield anomalously old radiocarbon dates because that water is in contact with limestone. Limestone has a lot of stable carbon in it, and that carbon gets incorporated into the water and thus into the animal. So, If you were to blindly date the animal with the radiocarbon method, you would get an excess of the daughter present, giving you a very old age, if you didn't know about this effect, which we do. And so we take it into account. And that's what these papers that creationists quote were talking about. What I like to summarize this category of claims as is basically misusing the technique. An analogy is that I recently purchased an iPad, 
Under the lines of argument of a young earth creationist with radiometric dating, I should loudly and proudly proclaim that iPads don't work because mine can't make my dinner. It's basically a blatant misuse of the tool in a way or method that was never designed for it to be used with. So of course, you're going to get bad results. My iPad was not designed to cook dinner. Therefore, it's not going to make dinner very well. Finally, I want to address a somewhat snide side comment that I found on several creationist websites. An example comes from trueauthority.com, which rhetorically asked the question, does radiometric dating provide the desperately needed proof, where proof is in quotes, that evolutionists have long been searching for of long periods of time? Now, this line of argument goes like this, and it's more of a philosophical claim. But first off, evolution requires long periods of time, such as a minimum of hundreds of years for small speciation, but more like tens of millions of years for completely new body plans. Creationists often mock this as, evolutionists say that given enough time, evolution can do anything. Microbes to man, basically. Creationists will then often claim that if it weren't for radiometric dating, we wouldn't know how old Earth is, and so evolutionists have tweaked the numbers, and so radiometric dating shows an old Earth so that evolution can be shown as true. There are many, many problems with this line of argument. The most basic, and the one that I'll go over, is that the timing doesn't work out for this to be valid. Evolution was first formalized in the 1850s and subsequent decades. 2009 celebrated both the 200th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln and the 150th anniversary of the publishing of Darwin's treatise on the subject, his book, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. If you listen to my special podcast, episode 36, or just happen to know about it on your own, you'll recognize that geologists and physicists had started, and astronomers, had started to estimate the age of Earth over 150 years before Charles Darwin published his work. James Hutton, for example, in the mid-1700s, looked at current geologic processes and estimated Earth's age to be on the order of millions of years. So, it is true that the discovery of radioactivity put much better numbers on the ages, but the concept that radiometric dating exists solely for the contrived purpose of providing enough time for evolution to happen is, well, we'll just say it's ludicrous. And with that said, I'll reprise what I said in the last episode and what I said during my Skepticamp talk. Radiometric dating is not perfect, but the science is well understood and the little niggling claims put forward by young Earth creationists misinterpret, misunderstand, or just ignore how the technique should actually be used or applied. The objective data, the basic data, from the most ideal experiments and circumstances all point to an ancient Earth that's roughly 4.5 billion years old. If you don't want to believe that, that's your prerogative. But if you're going to distort and misinterpret the science in order to bolster your views, then you open yourself up to critique by scientists and those who actually know what they're talking about.
For the new news segment, I have one article to discuss this episode. It relates to previous episodes 27 and 37, and it's yet another Wired article on outer space legal claims. This particular Wired article details some of the weirdest legal claims on things in outer space. One claim it talks about is James Mangan, who claimed to found his own country in 1949 in Illinois, the United States, and laid claim to everything in space. Unfortunately for him, the UN refused to recognize him as a country. Another was the story that I love bringing up of the Russian astrologer Marina Bayros, who sued NASA for messing up her horoscope when NASA's deep impact mission smashed into Comet Temple 1. She seeked $300 million, United States dollars, for moral damages. The suit was dismissed. And finally, there's a quote from Virgilio Pop, a space law researcher at the Romanian Space Agency. He said, Humankind has a short-lived collective memory, so the claimant is able to create some buzz before the story dies out, to be followed by a similar story years later. This episode's Q&A question comes from David W. from Colorado, USA, who asked, in a paraphrased manner, What about polonium halos in young Earth creationist claims? The answer to this is a bit longer than most of my answers to Q&A questions. First, polonium is radioactive. It's an unstable element where different isotopes have different half-lives that range anywhere from microseconds to a little over a 100 years. The issue is that polonium has been found in granitic rock. Granite, or granite, is an igneous rock by definition meaning that most of it's volcanic, but it contains a variety of different crystals and minerals and a variety of different percentages of each. Granite forms deep within Earth, at least a mile or about one and a half kilometers below the surface. And the accepted geophysics is that it takes millions of years to form, solidify, and then slowly intrude into other rocks as it pushes up to the surface. The idea of a polonium halo is that there's a spherical region of discoloration around polonium, or formerly polonium, grains in the granite. The creationist argument is that if the granite took thousands or millions of years to solidify, as mainstream geologists say, then it should not show the polonium halos, because at the time the granite cooled and solidified, the polonium would all have decayed away. This particular argument was advanced by Robert Gentry, who has a master's degree in physics and held a research position at Oak Ridge National Lab. So he's no dummy. But he's not a geologist, and that's important. There is a much, much longer version of this story that I've linked to in the show notes for the episode. But to put it succinctly, there are several problems with Gentry's methods and his conclusions. First, none of his samples were gathered by him, nor are they traceable to a source. In other words, he was sent samples of rocks by different people, and we don't actually know where they came from. This matters because part of Gentry's argument is that they came from original ancient granites of Earth, or some of the very first granites on Earth. But without any documentation of where they're from, we can't go into this. We can't actually test his claims. And there is evidence that they're not what he claimed to be. Following that is a second problem. 
What he identified as polonium halos was based off work done in the 19-teens, when we really didn't know about the structure of the atom, nor the crystal study or structure of minerals. Gentry relied upon basic assumptions from researchers at that time, a very, very simplified model, in other words, to make his conclusion. These simplified models were not supported at the time that Gentry was doing his work in the area, and they're not supported now. A third problem is that the halos could have been made by other radioactive elements. Obviously, there's no longer polonium present in the center of where these halos are, and so other elements that emit the same kind of radiation, of which there are many, could be the culprit. Radon is likely a contender. In other words, when you sum all of these different things up, the original claim by Gentry that these were made by polonium, and that because it was made by polonium, the rock must have cooled within three days or so, is not really consistent with what we know about how these form, about the rocks that were studied, and a much more geologically acceptable explanation has been found. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. One item of feedback this week related to episode 35, the Apollo Moon Hoax Photos Part 2. I forgot to mention that with the whole disappearing crosshair stuff. You can usually find much better, more original scans at any of the Apollo photo archive sites these days that show the images that people point to for disappearing crosshairs that are several, several generations removed from the original. And in the more original photos, the crosshairs are almost always present when in the later generations, they're usually not. And that means that it's time for the puzzler, where each odd quarter, even though this is an even quarter episode, I attempt to ask a critical thinking-based question, loosely based around the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario for episode 35, I realize it's been a while, was this. What was the first spacecraft to orbit the moon after Apollo that would have been able to photograph and resolve the Apollo landing sites? Congratulations goes to Forrest T. via email for being the first to send in a mostly correct response. The answer, and his answer, in terms of practically speaking purposes, was the Japanese Space Agency's SLEEN mission, a.k.a. Kaguya, that arrived in orbit around the moon in late 2007. The reason that I said that this was going to be a somewhat tricky puzzler is that Technically, any camera in orbit could photograph the Apollo sites if that spacecraft were brought into a low enough orbit. But none were until the combination of Selene's high enough resolution imaging camera and low enough orbit were in place in order to photograph the Apollo sites. This episode, with the main segment on radiometric dating, but more broadly upon the age of the Earth, the puzzler deals with the geologic column. The question is, is the geologic column ever seen complete on Earth? Why or why not? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next Odd Quarter episode, which happens to be the next episode. And 
That episode will be about crater age dating, the basic technique and methods, as well as caveats, so if you have any ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send it in. In terms of announcements, just a quick one, is that I will be at the Fort Collins, Colorado Skepticamp next Saturday, June 16th, which also happens to be when another episode is supposed to come out. I'll be reprising my talk about gaps young Earth creationists have to believe or ignore, with some revisions based upon feedback that I've gotten. I won't be recording it for a special edition of this podcast, though, because all of the material, or at least most of the material, will be the same as what I put out in the special edition episode 36. That wraps up this topic for the 39th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. Send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please follow me on Twitter, Dr. Astro Stew as Dr. Astro Stew, or the podcast as Pseudo Astro, or follow me on Facebook as Exposing Pseudo Astronomy. Also, if you like this, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also, tell your friends and family.